All right. Well, uh, again, good morning. Me again. Uh, so, so here's what we're going to do today. We, we are 22 days now into what is a 31-day journey through the book of Proverbs, this Old Testament book, this book in the Hebrew scriptures that is this really practical uh, book that's it, it just a compilation of sayings. Uh, to, to the wise, so to speak. Uh, and if we kind of are finding ourselves in need of some wisdom, the Proverbs is a good place for us to go and to think and to strategize about some really practical things, even though this book is thousands of years old that you and I are facing in our day-to-day. There was uh, one guy who was recently, I think about 2005, like studying the book of Proverbs, or at least he must have been, because he was interviewed um, when his, when his uh, paper supply company was being interviewed by a documentary film crew, and, uh, and he was asked to sort of pontificate on his thoughts about life. And I just think he must have been reading Proverbs because, because he said this. He said, whenever I'm about to do something, I think, would an idiot do that? And if they would, I do not do that thing. Right? And, uh, and this is maybe a tongue-in-cheek way to uh, sort of speak to if you've been looking at the book of Proverbs with us day in and day out, it may very well feel like that's kind of what the author is trying to get at to us. Like, like, like would an idiot do that thing? Then don't do that thing. But, but one of the things that's helpful for us to do together as a community, to pull the camera back and to, uh, to kind of get the broader picture, is, is that we can get back to that what's happening here in the Proverbs is not just the desire to, um, to get any one of us to adopt a series of pithy one-liners that will make us like you know, the, the, you know, really the, the, the exciting team lead for every group project or, or the smartest guy in the, in the break room uh, or the coffee shop, so to speak. But, the, but what really is happening is that um, at the, the way of God is to, to make wisdom available to us, not just to modify our behaviors and to not be an idiot, but because God cares about us. God loves us. God is for us, and God wants our lives to flourish. And so the book of Proverbs is not so much to ruin our fun or to make us feel right, but to say, hey, God has made in in, in his character and in his wisdom, uh, wisdom tangible and available and practical for you and I. And what that will always come up against is our own desire to just kind of do whatever we feel like doing in any given moment, or sometimes, honestly, just we know the thing we're supposed to do, but we don't feel like doing it, right? You know, you hear the phrase, the heart wants what it wants. Well, sometimes my heart wants French fries and only French fries. <laughs> like, and that would be not a great day over the course of totality for Scott Ann Caro, but probably a really great day for a cardiologist, right? Who is, who is going to go on a really nice vacation if I really just sort of gave into that mindset of the heart wants what it wants. So we've been reading a proverb a day and trying to let it challenge us, trying to let it comfort us, and trying to let it help us. The first nine chapters, again, were framed in. It was nine chapters of introduction. And you think I'm being lengthy, right? Like nine chapters of introduction about, hey, what this book is trying to tell us about is the fear of the Lord, right? The, the sense that when, when God is in the throne, right, on, on the throne, when we understand the, the vastness of the character and nature of God, we probably will humble ourselves a bit and our degrees don't matter so much. Um, and then additionally to it, 
this, this idea that for, for all of us, whether we have lots of advanced degrees or we didn't even graduate from high school yet, this, this idea of wisdom is, is available walking in the streets, trying to interact with us, trying to help us, trying to walk with us through really practical things like money, like relationships, like sexuality, like, like just all of those things. Like just stuff that we like sometimes don't even want to talk about or we're like, hey God, like you get the Sunday me, but the Monday through Saturday me, no, no, you don't get that. And, and so we get to that, that's the first nine chapters, right? What happens next, chapters 10 through where we're going to land today, um, if it just feels like a series of one-liners, if you've been tracking with us, it's because it kind of is. It's 375 sayings that, that Solomon is attributing to himself, right? That Solomon has said, hey, these 375 things are just good wisdom um, as it relates to the fear of the Lord, as it relates to this wisdom that's available to us. And, and he's tried to remind us along the way that God is interested not just in our behavior modification, but also our heart. But, but that's, that's the deal. So when we are looking at the first 16 verses today, we are looking at the end of, of 375 particular kind of one-off sayings. And then it's going to transition. The chapter will actually transition. When you say, hey, Scott, I noticed you didn't go through 17 and to the end of the chapter. You're right. Because what happens here is that there's a tone shift in the book of Proverbs where Solomon's going to move to the compilation of other sources. Um, picking up in verse 17, the 30 sayings of the wise. It's very likely, we can, you can look and kind of do a little bit of historical digging and see Egyptian, there's an Egyptian text that came out about 1250 that has a lot of parallels to what is in um, the next 30 sayings beginning in 22 verse 17. Um, that it's likely that Solomon would have gone, okay, like how do I take that and apply it to this context? It's kind of a compilation, right? Look at it this way if you're, if you're an artist. Like here's the artist that releases the original content and now the artist is going to put out a fun cover album, right? He's going to cover Miley's Wrecking Ball and you're going to go, oh, it's so good. But you, know, if it, but, but, you know, if it had gone the other way around, it would have been like, oh, you're just a cover band. Uh, no thanks. Uh, so, so that's kind of what we're looking at here. Now, the first, the, the first 16 verses are the tail end of these, these sayings, these 375 sayings, have a very, like, distinct structure in their original language. It kind of works like a, 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 like, a, like a poem, like an A-B-B-A structure. Uh, we won't see that in the English. They won't sound familiar, but they'll be familiar in theme. And so that's kind of the way that we'll tackle our few minutes together here is by looking at the first chunk of verses, which sort of, you know, sort of look at the A section of the text, then the BB, and then the A to kind of close it. That's called a chiasm or chiastic structure. Um, and I, that's about the, the end of my knowledge on such structures. And uh, so if you're an expert on those things, please go down in the lobby and talk to folks about chiastic structure over a cup of coffee. All right, uh, but seriously though, let's dive in. Let's take a look at the first five verses here um, and, and see what Solomon's trying to get us to think through. He says this, he said, a good name is more desirable than riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. Rich and poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. The prudent see danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and pay the penalty. Humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. In the paths of the wicked are snares and pitfalls, but those who would preserve their life stay far from them. 
So we'll pause here. And again, if this is the first Sunday you're tracking with us, you know, sometimes when we read in the Bible, we're, we're reading a narrative. We've got like, okay, Jesus was here and he did this and he talked to these people and this is how their lives changed because of that. That's not what we're looking at. We're looking at a series of individual statements that are, that are largely probabilities, okay? So, so you might know the starred asterisk of like, well, I know a guy who's the exception to that rule. Cool. I do too in some cases. But what we're trying to look at here, again, is the book of probabilities. He's telling us, hey, these things largely, uh, this, this stuff's going to help your life. It's going to help you walk in the fear of the Lord. And it's going to help you walk in wisdom because God cares about us in that way. And what do those five one-liners have in common? There's kind of this big idea of taking the long view. Right? Not just giving in to the immediate gratification, not just Scott saying, yes, I would like some fries with that versus I probably should eat a salad at some point this week. You know, really trying to stop and to consider not just what immediately feels good for us, what immediately gratifies our desires, but, but, to, but to look at our actions and say, hey, let's, let's think about a hundred years from now and let's think about the things that will matter and let's try to align ourselves to those things. So again, you know, like verses one and two kind of fly in the face of all of the reasons why some of us might move to a city like Baltimore, right? Because uh, maybe we moved here from our small town to like get a job, advance our degree, uh, build our resume, or something of that sort. Maybe, maybe why some of us are going, yeah, that's why I'm thinking about bugging out and going to this particular place because I can build a little more leverage. But what he tells us, one and two, a good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold, right? We functionally know that. We nod with that intellectually. Like, we even track with that. Like, we, 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 we want to get advice from people who, you know, aren't just curmudgeons and misers and, and terrible human beings in terms of how they've leveraged people to get rich. We, we actually like to sit and be with people of high character, but I think we all also understand just the temptation of like, yeah, but I need that money. You know, I need, I need this thing that's going to build my life. And getting that right now is more important. He tells us rich and poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. So to take a long view and to say, you know, if we're, if we're honest sometimes, we make passing assumptions about people who don't have what we have. You know, and if we really kind of take a step back and look at stories, if you've ever sat down with someone who's, who's been in a position of, of having lost everything and living on the street, you can see that it, it, you know, you can sometimes even identify with yourself like, man, it was really just a couple of things that like were crazy. Like it, this series of, oh my goodness, I can see myself in that story. What is he telling us to do? He's telling us to think about what matters a hundred years from now and to begin to align ourselves to those things. To not get, to understand that there's a connection between the decisions that we're making today and who it is that we're actually becoming. So, so you read one of these proverbs about debt or you read one of these proverbs about like the adulterous woman and you're like, yeah, but you're just overreacting. And this is what he's getting at. Like, we, we can all sort of peel back the layers of a devastating story or sitting with someone who's 75 years old and has a life well lived and, and, and like really begin to see a series of micro decisions, a day in and day out decision making process. And so he's pulling us back to sort of like, hey, have that kind of assessment in your own life and in your own story. There was a game that we used to go to the computer lab to play. 
because we did not have computers in our homes, at least most of us did in any way, called the Oregon Trail. The Oregon Trail, like Oregon Trail Day was a great, great day in third grade or fourth grade or whatever grade it was. I got to play this 8-bit wonder. And it was pretty advanced for, you know, the, at least games compared to it in the sense that, uh, you know, it, it tells the story of westward expansion in the mid-1800s, at least from like the European settler position, um, about these folks that are gathering in Independence, Missouri, and making their way across the Oregon Trail. And it was advanced for its time in the sense that you got to choose what your career path was, which spoke to the amount of resources you had. You got to put personal names in like, who is your wagon party? So it's, it's Scott and it's whatever girl I have a crush on. And it's like my teacher because I think she's going to get a snake bite and that'll be funny. Like, like, and, and, and then what it did was it sort of simulated the journey. Different destinations, different points, different variables. And there were three ways the game ended. The game ended, first of all, when your teacher said, hey, computer time is over. It's time to go to something that's no longer fun. Um, that was one way it could end. It could end this way. You made it to the Willamette Valley, where life is simple and sweet. <laughs> and your life has really just begun, because now you actually have to build a life out here. Or third, everybody in your wagon party dies. And, you know, and you get some kind of message like that when, when people in your party die. And when all five of the people in your party die uh, from dysentery or snake bites or whatever it might have been that got you, you are given the opportunity to leave an epitaph. Now, this was the wonder of the computer lab is that when you would go back for multiple visits, you could read what other people who have come before you wrote. And of course, you know, the brain trust of third graders, given the opportunity to write whatever they want into an epitaph, you know, usually went something like this. Here lies Paul Blart, you know, died by his own lethal, you know, you get it. You know, like, like some kind of, some sort of bathroom. It always devolved to some sort of bathroom humor or nonsense or something that rhymed. What was it intending to get us to appreciate? It was intending to get us to appreciate the sacrifice, the struggle, the danger uh, of westward expansion. It was, get, it was trying to get us to even begin in a very, in a, in a very Eurocentric settler kind of way that, hey, you're going to interact with other kinds of people and other kinds of variables and have to make decisions about those things. But in the end, like, our maturity was just sort of like, yeah, let's, it was just like, if we, if we died, let's just say something funny about poop. You know, like, just leave it at that. I don't, I don't know what else to say. Because to think about anything more as a third grader is a bit overwhelming, isn't it? And, and, and here's the deal, right? This is this, this, this trying to evoke in us a similar thing. Like, what the game is trying to evoke in that third grade instinct Solomon's trying to get to evoke in you and I. Like, we don't like to think about this stuff. We would rather not think about this stuff. And the pace of our lives might often encourage us to not have to think about this stuff. But hey, we got to think about this stuff. We got to think about like, hey, the current set of decisions, the person we're becoming, playing out. Can, can, can our daily habits bear out the person we feel like God is calling us to become? And if, and if there's a disconnect there, then let's address it. Let's deal with it. Let's talk about it. Which, which points to kind of the second section where, where Solomon begins to continue with the idea of acknowledging the role our behavior has on other people. Right? Because, because you can say in the first five, well, why does it matter? It's my life. I do what I want. Like, that's a very Western, enlightened, like, it's my life. Why do you care? 
Well, well, he's going to answer that question through the lens of community. Verse 6, start children off the way they should go. Even when they're old, they will not turn from it. The rich rule over the poor. The borrower is slave to the lender. Whoever sows injustice reaps calamity, and the rod they they wield in fury will be broken. The generous will themselves be blessed, for they share their food with the poor. Drive out the mocker, and out goes strife. Quarrels and insults are ended. That, he, he said a lot there. <laughs> he said a lot. Like, when we went from kids to debt to injustice to mockers. Okay, what, what do we get? What do we, all of those things have in common? Well, they all have in common community. Like, like, frankly, that our series of decisions that we make, the way we live our life, actually does matter in the broader context of other people, right? Like, what do my parenting decisions have to do with this or that? Well, ask your kids. You probably find out, right? What verse 6 is not saying, because we, we, we know the, this is one of those verses where, like, hey, we know the asterisk, right? We know people that, like, grew up with terrible families of origin that, like, have great, have dealt with it, confronted it, like dealt with it in a really edifying and helpful way. And we probably also know the others, like where we've said like, man, things really seemed great for their family. And why did the kid make a different set of decisions? Um, more than, than, you know, whether or not this text is prescriptive, it aims to help a parent understand that what you do matters. Like we know that, don't we? But in the day-to-day, it may often not feel that particular way. Um, Steven Spielberg just put out a movie called The Fablemans, which is a story of his life. It's essentially an allegory about his life. Uh, I went to see it yesterday purely because I, saw, I listened to an interview where he was talking about it. I'm not a film critic, but like the people that are film critics were going, hey man, we, did, does, this, does this story kind of speak to and the family fracture that's in it because his parents split up when he's like a late teenager? Um, does it speak to like why there are no like strong family units that are like, like there's always kind of like family strife in a Spielberg film, which I was like, I have never thought about that. Like when I'm thinking about Jaws and Jurassic Park and you might know the exception, but he didn't like poo poo the question. He wasn't like, how dare you say something like that? He said something to the effect of like, yeah, I've never really had given it a lot of thought till 2020 when the world kind of stopped. And I thought about the, lo- the way I wanted to tell my story. And, um, he said, uh, one of the things that speaks to uh, my movie making is I obviously have a great deal of feelings that I've been carrying with me that I wanted to unburden myself of. Like, and the interesting thing about the movie is that he, he paints his parents from a very favorable, they're efforting, they're trying, and they just, they have, they just have struggles that, that make it really difficult for them to have the strength of the marriage that they want. It's not painted in like this person or this person is the most world awful person. But, but what all of that is saying is he's still acknowledging it had an impact on him. The pain of it had an impact on him. It just, it, it's not even necessarily their fault, but it had an impact on them. And this is what, this is what Solomon's trying to get us to, to think about in this section. Like, like, hey, there's this person you want to become, but like in the interim, like as you're making these decisions, remember that we're not just making these things like, like in isolation. So, so we said that on the parenting front. We can say that from the sense of even our money, right? There's been all of these verses about leading up to this point, about caring for the poor, um, not trying to just die with the most toys, being generous. And, and one of the things he's going to drop on us here is that like our consumer debt 
makes it really difficult for us to, to, to just be generous because we have, we're, like, we're a slave to the creditor. We're a slave to the person that's always coming up and going, hey, you owe me this, this with this percentage of interest. Right? This, is the, this is the whole ministry of CFR. How do we help and equip churches to steward their resources in a particular way so that they're not burdened by like oppressive debt load? We think about this through the lens of, of the work of justice and even just the, those, th- I mean, it's the nuanced stuff, right? Like we don't want to think about where our chocolate comes from or our clothes come from and try to like write those things off as just like, well, if I don't think about it, it's not real. And, and what Solomon would have us think about is like, no, 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 like you, you have to think about these things because they're a reflection of that long-term legacy. Let's pay closer attention to those kinds of things. And then like out of that, if we acknowledge that just the way that we live our life does matter, it does impact people for the good, for the bad, for the tough, for the, hey, you're not perfect and I'm not perfect and none of us are perfect and we need to help each other with our blind spots, but we can still do this. Take responsibility for our formation, verses 9 through 13. Right? The generous will themselves be blessed. They share their food with the poor. Drive out the mocker, out goes strife. Quarrels and insults are ended. The one who loves a pure heart and who speaks with grace will have the king for a friend. The eyes of the Lord keep watch over knowledge, but he frustrates the words of the unfaithful. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I'll be killed in the public square. <laughs> and, and so they just here, you know, that, and that verse is a, is a kind of a comical one, but, but it sort of speaks to, again, like, if we're just waiting for everything else to sort of line up for us, like the sermon to line up perfectly that will tell us how to live and, and, and know what God is doing in our life, the friend, the friend to like give us the 30-year the plan that will answer all of our tensions, so that we, we don't have to pray about it, and we don't have to risk, and we don't have to do anything differently, then, then we're going to wait a long time. Right? Like one of, the, one of the things that like, you know, Martin Luther King Day was Monday. And, and one of the things I've just had noticed over the past couple of years, shepherding, um, trying to shepherd well, like to <laughs> good days and bad days, but trying to shepherd well to being a congregation that's at least thinking through like how do we, how do we help be agents of justice where there has been historic injustice in our country, in our community, um, and those are, those are conversations that we've tried to have more than one Sunday a year, right? The conversations where we've tried to think about the systems and the structures of our city, There's, where we tried to think about, hey, wh- where, where, where do we see division and how can we, you know, who do not know the answer to all of the conundrum, put ourselves in a position where we can do the work of justice today. But as I, th- if I looked, as I just thought about this over the course of the past three years, I, something I observed Right? That was troubling to me in the social media space. And part of why like, I, I feel challenged even to be present in social media, not because I'm better than people that are, or because, but just because like, I'm just gonna, like, I can't handle the nonsense. Like, it, like, it's, like, it's, like watching a, it's like watching a sporting event. And I'm like, why are you trying to go over the goal line when you're two yards out? That's last week's story. Um, the... the uh, to see in conversations about things like racial justice, people that will say, well, you know, it's the burden of everyone else to convince me that this is still a problem, you know, and you have to give me this compelling argument and giving, you know, they just, if we're just living in a place of evasiveness, but we're like, hey, happy Martin Luther King Day, like, 
That's not a teachable spirit. That's not saying, hey, I need to understand better. I need to seek wisdom on this topic. I need to see the layers and the nuances by which this is still playing out, right? If you grew up like me, and and that same kid in in eight years old who loved the Oregon Trail was told that Martin Luther King cured racism, and then you're like, wait, he didn't? Oh, shoot. (laughs) Like, that's my responsibility to say, hey, I got I to take some action. I have to seek to understand. I have to be teachable and open to what the Lord may be, may be calling me to pay attention to in this minute. Things like purity of heart. Purity of heart. Like the way that many of us will pursue purity of heart is we'll compare ourselves to persons that feel less pure to us. Like, yeah, yeah, I mean, I might be this or that, but if you knew this person, did you know my dad? Did you know this guy? Yeah, I might, I might sometimes run my mouth a little bit, but, did, but did, what about this person? Right? When, when God is actually calling us here to say, if, you know, the whole book of Proverbs is to say, hey, compared to God, we all have a lot of work to do. Um, one of my favorite people to, to hang out with uh, periodically is, is, is in his 80s. And, uh, and one of the things I love about talking with him is that like you can still, like there's still in him, he will just, in talking about the love of God for him, just well up. And, and not in a way that's like, it, feel, it doesn't feel contrived. It feels like it's the overflow of a person who in their 80s has not gotten so locked into like, to, to doctrine and church and churchianity that he cannot be open and teachable to what the, the word of God and the spirit of God is teaching him that particular day. And, and when I think about Mr. Larry, I think about a person who's taking the responsibility for their own spiritual formation. And, and today, whether we are, we, I mean, we feel like we're crushing it, everything's good, or we just feel like we are a mess, the whole central theme of the book of Proverbs is like, hey, it's not too late. It's not too late. God is still interested. God still wants to help us. And God still wants to lead us to a place of flourishing. Even if, even if it feels really overwhelming for us. To begin to think about what our life might look like relationally. Maybe physically, mentally, spiritually. To to begin to take stock of those things. And just say, hey, today, what would it mean for me to take stock of my own relational health? Like not waiting for community to come to me, but actually sort of pursuing it and diving into it. What would it mean for me to take responsibility for my physical health and to say, hey, I, I want to, you know, this, these are the steps I want to take. And I don't know how to get there, but maybe there's some people that can help me. Hey, I, I know that like I've lived a really some tough parts of my story and, and they're, they're, they're playing out up here sometimes in ways I see really run resourcefully. So, so who can help me kind of take ownership for my, for my, my spiritual formation, but also as I pursue, um, you know, wise counsel, good, good people around me that can help me carry that burden um, so that I'm, I'm, I'm where God needs me to be mentally. Um, and then just my own spiritual health, like not just sort of taking someone else's word for it, but to really dive into the scriptures and to be, to be teachable so what God might be teaching me today. You know, my guess is that something comes to mind in that sphere. Uh, my guess is also that 30 seconds will not suffice to answer that question. But, but, like, 
but to really think through what would it mean today to take ownership of our, of our story and to steward our, our lives, our hearts, our, our resources in a way that reflects, again, that longer view. Verses 14 to 16 is where we'll close this section today. Um, the mouth of an adulterous woman is a deep pit. The man who is under the Lord's wrath falls into it. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far away. One who oppresses the poor to increase his wealth and the one who gives gifts to the rich both come to poverty. And again, there's a whole other half hour is needed to unpack maybe the nuances of some of those things. But what's the core theme? Again, coming back to the long view. Let's think about 100 years from now. Let's think of the thing that matters most and let's begin to live into that thing. I had a great conversation last week with... Um, a person in our church, just about what God was doing in our stories. And, uh, and she, she observed this. She was like, man, I just sort of am starting to see the fruit bear for things I planted in the ground years ago. Like there's, there's things I opened my heart to, things I tried to learn more about. And, and it's been like years. And I'm just starting to see like the stuff break through. It was like, man, that is such a cool observation about the work of spiritual formation, right? That sometimes when we come into this room, it just feels like we're moving rocks. You know, it just feels like we're trying to pull weeds, you know, but, but, that, but that God is faithful as we continue to, to water and create a good soil for the work of God's wisdom and the fear of the Lord to take root. So communion today is just that reminder to, to do the work in our soil, the soil of our heart, right? The, that as we partake of bread and we um, partake of cup, we are reminded that, that God is present and near, working with us, walking with us, because God had the power to conquer death. Certainly God has the power to address your questions, your uncertainties, and the difficult parts of our story. And that, that, that cup is a tangible reminder of, of the depths to which God will pour out on your behalf to be graceful and merciful and forgiving as we go on this journey. And the whole essence of communion is we're doing it together. There's not one of us in this room who's got it figured out, who's got the, the bottom line, who's got like, check, I am the expert here, that Jesus is the one that we're all coming to the table to learn from and grow from. And, uh, and so may this time be a time where we just sort of open ourselves up and to let, let the work and the word of God sort of speak to the parts of our story, even the parts that we'd rather, we'd rather not think about today. There's four stations in this room. They're all gluten-free stations. I want to invite you to, as you are ready, to receive communion, to take it back to your seat, um, and just to reflect on the love of God, walking with the, the victories and the stresses of your story today. God, we, we thank you that um, you are patient and kind and compassionate and straightforward. Um, sometimes giving us the space we need to, to, to sort of walk with or wrestle through difficult things. And so God, as we 
receive bread and cup today, I just my prayer is that it would encourage us to walk in your forgiveness and love. That it would challenge us to not settle for the world of immediate gratification that's around us. But to see how you truly are better, as the song says, than all of those things. That's our declaration by receiving communion together. In the name of Jesus, our hope we pray. Amen.